I have a lot of skepticism and I would say even criticisms of the uh, Ray Kurzweil, the spiritual machine author, his idea of singularity. But I actually like his use of the word spiritual machines or the combination of those two because, again, you know, this is a very minority maverick view, but I believe actually that some of the greatest advance that we're going to see in the world in the future in a unifying or the convergence of a scientific view and a spiritual view will come from machines. It will come when we begin to make other types of intelligences. And see, the thing where I disagree with, with Ray is I, I think there's absolutely zero reason to make an artificial human brain. First of all, we can't yeah. do that because the matrix, the substrate of what a mind is made with matters. There is not a separate duality that the, the matter in which something is happening makes a difference and that the only way you can make a mind that thinks and behaves like a human mind is to make it with exactly the same kind of tissues. Right. And there's no reason to do that because we can do that so easily in nine months right now. But what we can't do with tissue is to make different kinds of minds, different kinds of intelligences, and ultimately different kinds of consciousness. And th- that will depend on how we make things. And so, uh, you know, we, we can make machines that are smarter than us right now in many different dimensions, right. but they're very narrow and they're not very, and they're not conscious or very little consciousness. And so, but, but eventually we will. And um, as we do that, we will begin to inevitably see spirits, see the spirit aspect of these things. Because right now they're just too small. They're too small-minded. They aren't big-minded enough to hold that. But as they become bigger, more complex, more advanced, more sophisticated, more evolved, they will begin to have room. And then we will, for the first time, begin to understand that these are real phenomena and that we have to use the language of science to understand this. And I think that's a very exciting time because I think it's actually spiritual machines that will, that will redeem and rejuvenate human spirituality. Right. Well, it's certainly just even the phrase itself speaks towards a non-dual understanding of reality, which is that that which has traditionally been thought to be antagonistic or opposite from each other or separate or set apart, in fact, are two aspects of one living something. And right. that spirit and machines go together. Exactly. They're spiritual machines or mechanical spirit, doesn't matter. Right, right, right. And that has to do with, again, this upgrading of an understanding of technium. Yeah, understanding exactly. that that is this manifestation of spirit itself. Right. So there is the traditional aphorism that we're not, you know, um, we're not humans on a spiritual journey. We're actually spiritual beings on a human journey. Yeah. And I, I think we'll understand the same thing about machines in a certain sense is, is that we're all on a spiritual journey and that there are, some of us will be humans and some will be, you know, non-human. Right. And as obviously there must be other beings in the world who, are, who aren't human as well. But I think this is more than just sort of coincidental or, or a byproduct, I, I think this, this chore or achievement or a task of, of creating 
alternative consciousness and alternative spirituality is actually part of the main event. That this is actually part of what evolution is about. This is part of what right. the universe is about. This is part of what right. the trophic system is about, which right. is to actually inhabit the world with all possible minds, with all possible spirits, right. and that only by you know having the 99 billion varieties of you know godhood of of of, of thinking of awareness can we hope to begin to kind of grasp at the meaning of the of the universe right so in other words it's going to take other it's going to take the collective assembly the, the collective aggregate of all minds right to understand god right right and i think one of the i think that's a really important point i think that one of the ways that that shows up is in again studies of developmental psychology because what we learn there is that human worldviews tend to unfold and develop and not in any prefixed platonic ordained way but just that this is the way that historically worldviews have unfolded and they tend to be carried with us not necessarily in a Lamarckian fashion but just even in cultural memory and Gene Gepzer, who was one of the first to look at this evolution of worldviews, had terms for the major levels of unfolding that are sort of self-explanatory, and so they're easy to use. And the terms were archaic to magic to mythic to rational to pluralistic to integral and higher. And one of the problems that we have with religion, with spirituality, is that it itself runs that entire line. There's archaic religion, there's magic religion, there's mythic religion, there's rational religion, there's pluralistic religion, there's integral religion. And the one of the main distinctions is there is also the higher stages of that developmental scale are transrational, whereas the lower stages are pre-rational. And not to judge any of them is absolutely better or worse than the others but simply to say that because there is this increasing consciousness increasing expansion of freedom increasing expansion of perspectives that development tends to give human beings that transrational religion transrational spirituality tends to be that kind of spirituality we find at the core of the great contemplative traditions so whether that's contemplative Christianity and the early Desert Fathers uh, aiming to have this consciousness be in you, which was in Christ Jesus, that we all may be one, or whether it's the Vedanta notion of Brahman and Atman, or whether it's the Sufi notion of supreme identity of the soul and Godhead, that transrational form of spirituality is quite different from the magic and mythic forms which are pre-rational and tend to be ethnocentric and tend to have to do with a chosen people and a chosen path. And my path is real and is the only correct path and everybody else's path is wrong, incorrect, infidels. And the, one of the difficulties is for us to distinguish those two broad categories and to realize that individuals that are doing contemplative experimental, phenomenological, introspective 
types of spirituality are different from those who are proclaiming a particular dogma, a particular mythological feat uh, that you have to believe in or else you're going to hell. Not that that is anything wrong with that as a worldview, but just that along the religious developmental line itself, there are you know, so many different worldviews, and particularly these, these two broad chunks that relate in comparison to science as being pre-rational science and post-rational science. So, in other words, the trans-rational spiritual paths can very easily be integrated with rational science right. because they transcend but include them. Right. And I think that is one of the things that we're going to get from this increasing scientific understanding of an alternative view of spirit as being pantheistic or panentheistic. And one of the problems that slows down that realization is the widespread presence of fundamentalism and traditionalism. This is, after all, what the new atheists, the Sam Harris's and the Richard Dawkins go nuts over is, you know, the belief that the world was created in six days. Uh, Moses really, really did part the Red Sea and uh, Mary really was a biological virgin and so on. And that type of belief is very common in magic and mythic religious structures, but it's not common at all in practices of meditation and contemplation and transcendental awakening that we find in the, in, the, in the great contemplative traditions. And so I think one of the things that might start to happen is that the orientation of the contemplative practices, the mystical practices, as opposed to the dogmatic practices, the practices dependent upon direct mystical experiences, as opposed to ones dependent upon a simple belief, I think that kind of awakening might start coming with this spiritual machine approach. Exactly. I mean, because right now there is a little bit of a speciesism among, say, uh, the people who tend to, say, adhere or at least to support uh, that the the kind of mystical transcendental view are often very eager and um, avid humanists. There, there was they really right. value the, the 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 value of of the human condition and the right. human challenge, and they are often not sympathetic to the idea that machines can do this. Right. So, right. and in fact, they see a lot of the mechanical aspects of the world as promoting or at least encouraging kind of this fundamental view of the world. Right. And so, I, I think there is a um, I think we're headed for a kind of a very very noticeable friction at some point between the technologists who may be making these things and the mystics who uh, say, well, machines can't do this. So I'm imagining that kind of one of the uh, you know, a, a formative moments will be the, the day that there are protests in the streets with robots and placards saying, we are the children of God. Right. And the only thing that could have as much impact on that would be if we actually contacted a, an ET or something, yeah. and they they came yeah. down. So, so this is a, the equivalent yeah. of of sort of meeting <laughs> another, uh, and and you know meeting ET. I think the you know, probability is is very low, but but you know making conscious robots, I think, is very very high. 
And yeah, exactly. And there's also a reason to do that, as as you pointed out, and we were just saying a minute ago, which is that's not simply cloning a traditional human brain. Right, right. That's actually making something different. Right. And there's a reason to do that. Right. And the encounter of that difference will be exactly, nearly, equivalent to contacting an ET. Right, right. And that that act, actually, from, from my Christian perspective, that act of, of making this is actually the completion of the mandate from God, which is okay, God is the creator. The creator makes things that, like us, that have free will that can create. So, so what, yeah. the, what creators do is they make other things that can create, that, that in some way leverage or amplify that, that this free will to, and creativity of, of, its, of the most uh, basic, pure sense. And right. so for us to actually be in the image of God, we actually kind of need to go to the next level, to, to do the next recursive loop, which is to create beings that will surprise us. And that's our job. Right. Our job is to surprise God. And right. so part of that obligation is to create other things that will surprise us, that will surprise God. Right. And so this is, again, this is not just sort of an, uh, an option. This is, this, is, this is the main assignment. Right. And um, to fill the world with these other creative beings that we unleash. But before we unleash, and this is the crucial thing, we need to, to give a conscience. We need to, we need to train and to, we, we need to unleash their creativity with moral guidance. Right. And, you know, it's not, it's not a free-for-all. I mean, that, that, that's the tree of good and evil. I mean, that's, that's what we have to do. We have to, to, to understand. We have, we have to embed in that somehow or other, and that's the, that's the difficult part. I, I'm with you on all of that, and all of that is indeed quite outside of mainstream, but I think that, that it all makes sense, and particularly looking at it from evolutionary perspectives, where each stage of evolution brings a new perspective into existence, brings a second person out of a first person, and a third person out of a second person, and now a fourth person out of a third person, and, and there will be fifth person perspectives out of fourth. And those are things that we appear to be right at the hub right now, where a third person perspective has been brought forth by spiritual evolution mm-hmm. and so it's to a point where evolution has become conscious of itself and is starting now to reproduce itself through the medium of human beings mm-hmm. and their spiritual machines mm-hmm. and the spiritual machines will be ones that is, as you've said and by definition are essentially different from the yeah. human beings and how that happens of course is is one of the questions that you deal with and these blogs that we might uh, have a chance to get to. And that's, <laughs> Sorry. What's, what's the source of up creation? Uh-huh. And in other words, where it does, it's, uh, how can you have a higher emerging out of a lower? Yeah. And the one answer is, well, it's just it comes from nothing, and that's kind of a boring, stupid, I don't know answer. And another is, well, there's the higher has been embedded in the lower from the Big Bang, from the beginning, mm. and just has a chance to unfold. So up creation is simply the coming into explicitness of an implicit higher dimension or higher awareness, higher intelligence that was there from the start. And so that notion of up creation itself easily lends itself to the notion of a spirit or a God that is eminent in evolution itself. 
Mm-hmm. And that's how each stage of evolution, in fact, is a little bit bigger than the one that went before it. Mm-hmm. And you've written on this as well, and would, I'm guessing, find a spiritual interpretation of evolution to considerably help along the notion of up-creation. Yeah, just to maybe further elucidate the, up, the idea of up-creation, which is that um, you can imagine up-creation very simply is is if there was a you know a, a brain like a human brain that was capable of actually making a brain artificial brain that was smarter than itself yeah so if we were able to do that that would be uh, an example of up creation but we actually see up creation in other simpler ways in um in natural history and evolution in things like the superorganism right in a ant termite bee colony where you have a emergent level of intelligence and smartness that's greater than the individuals so right. that's the typical view of a of a ant colony is that the ant colony itself is smarter more varied behavior more sophisticated behavior more complex behavior longer deeper than any of the intelligences of the ants themselves. And so the question is, where does that intelligence come from? If it's if you can't find it in any of the individuals, it sort of almost sort of magically appears, but, we, you know, we use the word emergence, but it's a very, you know, we can explain this in a kind of very reductive scientific way, but it's, in my phrase, it's a creation. It's, it's creating something greater than the lower levels. Right. And it happens all the time in these extropic systems. Right. And is, again, something that handsomely, coherently fits with the notion of evolution as a spiritual unfolding. Right. And with different dimensions of that spiritual unfolding, one of which, as an intrinsic dimension to it, is the technium. Right. It goes all the way down, all the way down to the Big Bang. Right. And is part of the manifest dimension of spirit itself. And that's an extraordinary view, incidentally, and is even though I'll read a paragraph or two here where you talk about some evolutionary pantheism and it's some of its religious uh, correlates, mm-hmm. but that notion tying the technium in as a dimension of spirit and that going all the way down, that is new. That's a that's a new addition to typical statements from Teilhard de Chardin to Aurobindo, and I think it's a really important contribution on the religious side of the street to discussion of what a spiritual evolution consists of. Mm-hmm. And one of the things it consists of is this dimension, this technium. The technium is a way that, in the manifest universe, uh, among many other things, what it does is it's a way that separate sentient beings are connected to each other and can communicate with each other. And that communication is one of the major, major accomplishments and feats of the technium, and it's one of the main reasons why the technium is not just a third person, but has dimensions in first, second, and third person perspectives, but is a fundamental dimension of spirit itself and spirit in action in the world. Yes. I agree. And so I think that's uh, one of the absolutely fascinating aspects that we can draw from from your work. And there's that paragraph or two on its uh, relation to 
religious followers. Uh, not surprisingly, this modern evolutionary pantheism has its religious followers. In Christian circles, one strand is known as process theology. In oversimplified terms, it describes God as a verb, as a process. God is not monumental entity, infinite in all directions, but rather is changing, or perhaps, although they don't use this word because it entails time, evolving itself. The earlier version to accepting a God less than infinite in all directions is overcome in part by the recent appreciation that an evolving God is superior to a static God. You tell me which God is greater, a God incapable of improvement or one constantly perfecting. Evolution is educating us to belatedly acknowledge the latter as the greater being, at least as far as our minds can grasp. Furthermore, in process theology, the inherent logical paradoxes of God are embraced as unavoidable, in somewhat the same way that Gadell's theorem reveals the inherent contradictions in any logical system is unavoidable. Like all definitions of God, evo-pantheism contains its own absurdities. In fact, technically, this perspective might be more accurately called panentheism, which means that believers want to keep their cake and eat it too. Christian theologians hold the view that God is simultaneously both transcendent, not of the universe, but eminent in the universe, in the person of Jesus Christ. By his own volition, the unbounded God limited himself into the form of the very tiny body of a man. On the other hand, Islam is one long argument against this idea of a transcendent God limiting itself to special eminence. It maintains Muhammad is not the eminence of God and prohibits his picture in defense of this temptation. Evil pantheism is open to straight-up eminence. God is evolving itself. And that evolution is what we call the universe. In any event, either way, when we read that, we have got a way to have a transcendental God that is in some ways timeless and a material, manifest, concrete universe that we have them together and that we have them intimately correlated and, in a sense, codependent. And I think that's one of the major appeals that you're exploring in pantheism or panentheism, and uh, particularly for the you know nerdy, geeky, techy, college-educated individual who simply cannot buy a merely mythic, personified god as separate from this universe and ruling it, pushing it around, giving it morality in in a very strictly command and control fashion, the type of religion that they got from Sunday school and gave up on because it just doesn't fit reality as, as they know it. And yet a spiritual evolutionary spirit is one that makes much more sense to them. And I think also the more that it's understood that these spiritual evolutionary religions are based on spiritual experience, are based on, in a sense, a, 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 an expanded empiricism very scientific in, in that sense, makes it the type of spiritual training and belief and school that could indeed become part of tomorrow's religion. Yeah, I mean, I, I think that there, there are, there, right now, as we speak, there are a few um, people like uh, Michael Dowd, who is a intuitive uh, 
roving, roaming, wandering preachers going around to churches in America preaching the gospel of uh, you know theistic evolution. Right. And I, 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 you know, in my own conversations with people in the evangelical circle, is that their belief, personal belief, is far more leaning towards embracing evolution than what is preached from the pulpit. And that I think that, you know, it's very clear that that kind of evolutionary perspective, even in classical Orthodox Christianity, is very sympathetic to the Bible, and I, I, I suspect that in 50 years from now, people will look back on this argument within the, you know, evangelical Christian church with the same perplexity that we look on the argument about indulgences. Yeah, it's like, yeah. what were they arguing about? I mean, I mean, how, how could there have ever been any, you know, fight over this? Because this, it will seem fairly obvious that that the perspective you were just talking about, this kind of evolutionary sense of God, well, people will say, yeah, duh. That, yeah. Uh, you know, it fits in there. There's no, there's no problem here. Right. Um, what were they really fighting about? Right. As this joins forces with things like process theology, there's also a way to read into this handling of creation and handling the whole problem of emergence itself. And that is, as you're aware, in process theology, Alfred North Whitehead maintained that each moment was a subject that came into being. And it was actually, it had feeling. It was a, mm-hmm. a proto-experiential reality. Mm-hmm. And that this subject comes into being each moment and then passes away and is grasped by its successor, which is a new subject that comes into being in a novel fashion, prehends or fields the preceding subject, which then becomes an object, and passes into the past, passes into time. Mm-hmm. So you have a string of both causality, which is that each new subject, when it prehends the previous subject, is bound by it. And so there's a degree of causality to that. But it also emerges, and it emerges as part of this creative advance into novelty. So the emergence itself has a degree of creativity. And that degree of creativity is the degree of freedom that the particular individual sentient being brings into existence. And it's lower on the earlier stages of evolution and increases as evolution itself increases. So the amount of creativity and novelty brought into existence by a rock, for example, is very, very limited. And therefore, physicists can predict the location of a rock, you know, barring un- unforeseen uh, forces, you know, 100 years from now, 1,000 years from now. Whereas they can't predict the location of a dog, you know, three seconds later, due to the increasing amount of creativity and novelty in the biological cells, as opposed to merely material atoms. And it's, it's that kind of closing the gap between eminence and transcendence, eros and agape, otherworldly and thisworldly, that spiritual machines, in the very broadest sense, are working with, with, with overcoming. And I think that's one of the reasons that the spiritual machinery, again, is, as we're discussing the term, is going to you know, herald a real sort of breakthrough in a, 
a marriage of uh, science and religion. And in some of the ways that you're talking about with doubt, for example. Exactly. Yes, I agree. Yeah. Extraordinary events and extraordinary unfoldings happening right now. 